This episode of Life on a Plate is sponsored by Vitamix. Now, Vitamix is much more than just a blender because a Vitamix can make everything from frozen desserts and smoothies to nut butters and dips. You can use it to grind coffee or spices, and this one really threw me. It can even turn raw ingredients into hot soup in just six minutes. In fact, it's a fantastic tool if you want to get more fruit and veg into your meals, and it's great for plant-based recipes too, making it really easy to eat healthily. A Vitamix is simple to use, and here's the bit that I really love, easy to clean, but it's powerful too, and you can expect fast and professional results, which is one of the reasons why many chefs would not be without one. Vitamix have been around since 1921, which is 100 years of expertise that goes into every blender, and they are completely built to last. All in all, a Vitamix is a great investment, and I can absolutely vouch for the fact that it's a total game changer in the kitchen. To get yours, visit johnlewis.com forward slash Vitamix. Welcome to Life on a Plate, the brand new podcast from Waitrose, in which we talk to some very special guests about what food really means to them. We ask about their comfort foods and favorite dishes, their food memories, and even their kitchen disasters. And by the end of each episode, you'll know a lot more about them. With me, as ever, is my co-host, Alison Okavy, Waitrose food editor and kitchen genius. I just went with genius that <laughs> time. She makes me call her that. or yeah, she, she demands it. Um, how are you, Alison? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? What have you been up to? Well, never mind all that. I've got something I want to ask you. Oh, yeah? <laughs> And it's the it's the important business of snacking. One of the great things about doing these conversations is we're kind of looking at each other, we're recording remotely, but I get a little window into your life. And I'm pretty sure the other day you were like devouring some lovely little crudités with a nice little sophisticated dip. And I feel like I'm a lot more the kind of person that would just like kind of cram in some biscuits or, you know, just kind of grab... Uh, I don't know, some sort of crisps off the side, but you were like having something really healthy. Is that, are you a healthy snacker? I do try to be a healthy snacker because I just actually really like savoury things. I really mm. like salty and savoury. And, and what so was I, it you were having? Um, I think I'd hacked up a cucumber. And so it's got to be in like big chunky pieces with a bit of salt. And I think it, I can't remember what the dip was. I think it was a bit of mushroom, kind of a mushroom dip or something, mushroom patty of some form wow. and crackers. It was wow little bit of a picky picky thing just to keep going see this is the thing i'm learning things and i feel like i'd love to be at that point where i could have that kind of healthy snack <laughs> and feel satisfied um, but yeah that's the kind of thing that i yeah i don't know i i suppose so what do you go for i suppose to be honest one of my favorite things as an emergency snack is maybe like some peanut butter on something, on like a corn cake or something, if I Ooh. wanted something a little bit healthier, with a bit of fruit, with an apple. But if we're talking non-health and just kind yeah. of desperately need some sugar and a lift, it's probably biscuits. I'm probably more of a sweet person traditionally. I mean, if there's a whole a tray of cookies straight out of the oven, they've just cooled enough to hot be firm and then that's it, I'm in. 
Oh God, yeah, I'm totally with you. But again, I I feel like I'm quite indiscriminate in this case. Like you know, <laughs> the cheapest biscuits imaginable, or even like really <laughs> nice ones. I like both ends of the scale. Um, sweet stuff is an appropriate conversation topic because of our guest in this episode. Mm. And our guest is Joanne Harris, who, of course, is the author of the 1999 bestseller and subsequently uh, Oscar-nominated film, Chocolat. Joanne is a born and bred Yorkshire woman uh, with a really fascinating background, Um, half French, half English. Um, She was raised with a real sort of French sensibility when it came to food. Um, she grows her own stuff. She's great on different appetites and different eating philosophies of the French versus the English. Um, I didn't know too much about Joanne, but she's got a really fascinating, um, take on the world. She's a really prolific author. And what did you make of her? I thought she was fascinating. I mean, just the whole growing up in England with, with a French family and the way she's t- talked about going back and visiting and just keeping her French family and heritage alive. Whilst in Yorkshire, was just, she was just fascinating. And just her take on food, because she was quite open with the fact that she has synesthesia, mm. which me- which is just something I'd never even heard of before. Yeah, so that, uh, for people that are equally blissfully unaware, is where you experience uh, different senses kind of at the same time. So you can kind of colours have a sound or like uh, colours have a smell and sort of all it's all kind of jumbled up together. And she was talking about the fact that it it's affected her writing and the way that she views the world. She was great on the whirlwind of Chocolat, which is which was, you know, 20 years ago last year and um, just giving us that insight into what it's like to be at the heart of something so crazy and such a sort of... It was just sudden, yeah. a sudden rise to fame. And- such a phenomena, yeah. Juliette Binoche coming to her house. Uh, that was... I quite enjoy the vision of Juliette Binoche just kind of sweeping a small town in Yorkshire. Feels like a film or a book in itself. Um, but yes, she uh, was great on the sweet stuff and uh, she was just a joy to have on. A really sort of smart compelling and beautifully honest interview as well so yeah shall we get this show on the road sounds a good plan okay so without any more mucking about here is our life on a plate interview with joanne harris Joanne Harris, welcome to Life on a Play, and thank you very much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. I wanted to start um, with the start of your kind of life and journey, really. Um, you were raised in Yorkshire above a sweet shop, is that correct? Well, I was born in a sweet shop. You were born in a sweet shop? I was born in a sweet shop. Wow. Um, I, I grew up slightly slightly further away. I, I was born at my grandparents' corner shop. There was very little that was foodie about it. It was a very typically Yorkshire news agents with sweets in glass jars. So nothing at all like my my sweet shop in Chocolat. Oh, okay. So a very different thing. But the point I was going to uh, pick up on was your mother was French. Uh, your father was British. They met on a French exchange out in Brittany, I understand. And um, I wondered, putting the sweet shop side of it to one side, how did that 
upbringing influence your relationship with food and that kind of cross-cultural influence how did how did that kind of impact the way that you grew up thinking about food enjoying food understanding food that kind of mix of british and french well it wasn't so much british as yorkshire in those days this was the 60s <laughs> there was a very particular kind of yorkshire food and my grandparents ate that way but my parents didn't my mother came to to barnsley in the 60s without really speaking much english at all and without knowing anything about the, the customs and the way people were. And so everything was new to her. Fish and chips was, was just bizarre and, and pies and roasts and gravy and Yorkshire puddings and custard on everything. And she just refused all of this and said, okay, we are going to speak French at home. We are going to eat French at home. And so I was in this kind of little bubble world at home and outside there was the rest of Yorkshire. And of course, when we went on holiday and we went to my grandparents, we had that culture and that was very French. It was very Breton. Um, it was so different that there was no explaining it to the people back at home. Um, my grandparents who didn't speak French and who, who viewed anybody who came from the other side of the Dale as a kind of dangerous outsider, you know, we were eating, <laughs> we were eating raw fruit. We were eating pasta. We were eating all, all kinds, <laughs> we were eating galette and all kinds of things they hadn't heard of. And, and they just, I think my grandmother particularly, who was, uh, who was quite suspicious of foreign food, felt that you know, when I was with her, I should be given as much wholesome Yorkshire food as possible, just so that I'd be able to grow. Um, sadly, I didn't like any of that stuff, and I wasn't used to it. And of course, when I went to school and had to have school lunches, I wouldn't eat anything, because it was all smothered in, in things that I just considered to be just revolting, like gravy and custard. And so I wouldn't eat anything that those things had touched. So I must have been a terrible pest at school. I know that the dinner ladies tried awfully hard to get me to eat something. And I don't think I had the vocabulary to, to explain to them that it just, it just wasn't a culture I was used to. It's probably quite a relatable to lots of people that have grown up, you know, children of immigrants and have grown up in this kind of household bubble of doing things one way and then going out into the world and suddenly having to kind of adapt to, to a completely different way of living and way of doing things. Um, were there any dishes that you, any Yorkshire dishes, any British dishes that you did sort of cling to as something that, oh, I get this, I really like this? Were there any things that kind of formed the bridge between the cultures for you that you kind of, that you remember liking as a child? Not really. Not in that way. Not, not things that you would consider traditional Yorkshire dishes. What I did like was um, what my grandfather made from what he grew in his garden and his allotment. And so he would make jam and jellies and preserves. And all those things I understood because I think those things are kind of more universal. And so I understood gardening and I understood garden produce. Um, and I ate very, very simple things as a child. If, if I could recognize what it was, then I would eat it. And if it looked as if it had been messed around or covered with something, I wouldn't eat it. And, and so it was very simple. So things like Yorkshire rhubarb would have been out as well. No, I ate rhubarb. As long as it wasn't smothered in custard. As long as it didn't have that, I would eat it in pies and cakes. And, and I also, of course, because as children, we all fought with rhubarb too, because rhubarb makes an excellent impromptu sword and, and you can use yep. the leaf as a shield. And, um, and I remember. Yeah. And, and rhubarb also dipped in sugar, which I think a lot of the kids used to eat in those days. Nowadays, they probably wouldn't. But uh, 
but then it was it was a good thing. It's really interesting again that you mention the idea of growing things, your grandfather's allotment, and specifically jams and strawberries because your uh, most recent book. Um, forgive me, you're so prolific that it might not actually be your most recent <laughs> book, but certainly your novel that was out last year, The Strawberry Thief, is uh, is the continuation of of the story you first started in Chocolat, like um, just over a decade ago now. Um, it's it's a place and a set of characters that you've returned to frequently. And that's not always the case with writers of books that become these big bestsellers and sensations. Um, what is it that's that's kept you coming back? And I noticed that on Twitter, you're Joanne Chocolat, and you seem to be incredibly proud of of that world and that set of characters <laughs> and that book. Well, I think initially it was because I wanted to write something about my French family and the places of my childhood. And, and Chocolat was a very kind of nostalgic book. It was about things as I remembered them. And so it's it's not quite the France as it is, but it's a kind of France that exists in in memory and in nostalgia for me. And it became very real. And the characters became very real because a lot of them were based on people that I knew. And Vianne particularly has a number of links to me. She's not exactly me. She's not a self-portrait in any way, but we have a number of things in common. One is our relationship with food. Um, the other is our relationship with our daughters. And and so because I initially started to write this, this series of books without meaning to write a series at all, I, I wrote as the parent of a five-year-old child and, and as... As my child grew, I wrote as the parent of a teenager and then the parent of an adult child. Um, and so I think we have, we have this link of motherhood between us and also this link of having um, a history and a philosophy of food and a certain, a certain view of it. And that view was shaped very much by my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, all on the French side, um, which is unfair to my um, my English grandmother, who was also an excellent cook, but I, I you know, I, I lived next door to her practically. I saw her every day. There wasn't that need to kind of reach out and stay in touch with that other culture that I only really connected with once or twice a year. What are your memories of those trips back and those times? Um, I've seen you talk previously about Easter being a pr particularly evocative time for you in France, and obviously um, the link to Chocolat and the the resonance it has within that story and in other other stories set um set in that kind of period and in that world um yeah what are your kind of real striking memories of those times were you um a child that was very adventurous in what you ate and not squeamish and up for trying things that maybe i mean i can absolutely say that i'd struggle to get my four-year-old and seven-year-old to uh, to try half of these things if it's not a sausage or a uh, or deep fried they uh, they aren't as interested but <laughs> I didn't think of food in that way to me food was mm. very much about the people that surrounded it and so it was very much about sitting in the kitchen in my great-grandmother's house and she would always give me something to do whether it was shelling peas or taking the little tails off the green beans or something and so I was always there in the kitchen and she was always telling stories and when she died, my mother took over the same role. She was always telling stories about people. And so to me, all the food that she made, all the recipes that she had were from somebody. They were like postcards from the past. They were her way of keeping in touch with family in France. And, and 
it was also a way of celebrating the dead. And so it was my grandmother's cake or my great grandmother's recipe for this. And all these, these dishes that my mother made had associations with me. And because my parents were teachers, they had these long holidays at Christmas, at Easter, in the, in the, the summer. And so we would, we would go back then and the whole family would get together because it was the time that they got to see us. And so I remember these enormous family dinners with 20, 30 people there and everyone talking nonstop. And the meal would go on for four or five hours and the kids would wander off and play and then they would wander back again for another course and they would wander off and play. And it was it was like a festival. Every time we went there, it was it was a big celebration, whether it was at the house, at my grandfather's house, or whether it was by the seaside at his holiday home. Um, there were always these, these tables groaning with food. It's incredibly evocative and in the point about recipes being linked to um, a certain lineage and a heritage and our own ancestry and memories and doing something a certain way, uh, kind of uniting you with, with, you know, grandmothers or great grandmothers or parents that did it that way before. And it's kind of a way of keeping people alive. And that's a really, that's really interesting. And I think quite a resonant thing at the moment, as we've all been confined and sort of people have been sharing recipes and trying to feed each other at a kind of safe distance and things like that. How has your, how has your relationship with food been throughout this kind of period? I'm very lucky in that I've got a big garden and it's just me and my husband in the house. And um, I spent much of the summer there and, and I grow the odd little thing. I'm not like my grandfather. I don't have this, this wonderful organized allotment, but I do have a lot of fruit and some vegetables. And I haven't, I've never felt so grateful for those things, just for the, the practicalities of, of tending for them and picking them and enjoying them. The choice of what I have is relatively limited because I order from a local shop and, and I, I sort of mm. look look at buying things like olives and chilies and and things online because uh, you know I, these are things that I can't live without, but they're not very yeah. very typically local things to me. Are they the ingredients that you've missed most then? Olives and chilies and those kind of non seasonal. Well, yes, I did have I did have a lot of them in stock anyway because I always do, but now I've run out. And so I'm, I'm looking with, with dismay at my pasta sauces, which don't have capers or olives <laughs> anymore in them and, and thinking, oh dear, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to do something drastic, uh, to, to, to resolve this. But no, I did, I've been cooking a lot of, of vegetables. My, my husband is vegetarian from a long way back. Um, I'm sort of vegetarian by association, but I have been finding that I, I miss some of my French dishes, my, my, the reason that I can never be fully a vegetarian is that I have a French cultural identity, which is built around certain things, certain kind of nostalgic mm-hmm. foods, which I would only eat in France. I'll eat them and I'll feel that I'm reconnecting with some part of, of the past. And so although 99% of the time I don't eat meat or fish, um, when I go to France, I do. And I become this different person. I'm missing that person right now. What's the dish that you're looking to recreate? Kind of if you were going back to France, what's one of the first dishes you'd cook? Well, I wouldn't cook at all. I would go out. Okay. When I go to France, I go to where my grandfather's house was. And I go to the cemetery and I put flowers on the graves and I make sure everything's clean. And then I would go to the market. And they used to be in Vitré at the market. And there still is probably. 
a little van that sold galette saucisse. And they were hot, hot rye pancakes cooked there on a griddle, and you queue up and wait. Mm. And they wrap it in paper like fish and chips. And there would be a variety of sausages there. There might be merguez, the spicy ones, or just the ordinary grilled sausage. Or there might be also boudin blanc, um, the white pudding, or boudin noir, the black pudding, neither of which are remotely like what the British call black or white pudding. Um, So I would probably ask for three galettes and maybe two sausages and I would just walk along the streets and eat them very slowly. And that would be my first, my first meal there. And then maybe after that, I would get into the hardcore seafood and the, the mussels and, and the things that, that I would associate with, with, with summertime. A lot of the associations and the strong sort of nostalgic dishes you have tend to be savoury things and because of chocolat it seems like you've spoken in the past of being heavily associated with sweet and with baking and things like that and I want to hear Alison's take on this as well because I know she's a real keen baker how has that been for you to become to be sort of the you know the the chocolat woman and the woman of sweet dishes and things like that when actually your your heart belongs to uh, these kind of savory staples it's interesting because I think yes people do assume that I'm much more sweet tooth than I am I do like cakes and baking and chocolates but to me they are not everyday things. And I think that's my French side coming out because French people do not have desserts in the way English people have desserts. In France, a dessert is something that you have on a special occasion or when you go out or on Sundays. And there's a big tradition of people going to the patisserie on Sunday and coming back with a cake because the family is together. But it's not something that you automatically associate with a meal. And so to me, they are celebratory things, but they're not things that I have all the time, whereas savouries, you do have them all the time. Um, I mean, obviously, chocolat has been a wonderful gift to me in many ways, but it also means that people give me chocolate all the time. Um, and sometimes, I'm mean, particularly when, when it first came out, and it's a book that actually came out in Italy six months before it came out in England. And so I toured Italy, and I had lots of events, and I went to chocolate factories and I ate every single chocolate you can imagine. And everywhere I went, there was chocolate. And my, my final visit, with, which was the Milan launch, was in a place called Cova, which is an absolutely beautiful Italian tea shop that specializes. Of course, it does in chocolate. And by then, I had been touring for three weeks and I was, I was up to here with the chocolate. I just couldn't look at chocolate again. I couldn't smell chocolate. Um, and I thought, you know what? If, <laughs> If I have to eat chocolate here or be photographed with chocolate here, I'm just going to bite somebody. And the maitre d' was waiting for me in his lovely Italian outfit. And he said, Signora, I have something wonderful for you. And I said, oh, bloody hell, it's going to be chocolate, isn't it? It's going to be chocolate, please, please. And he went round the back and he came back with this tray of anchovy toasts. And he said, you know... I thought maybe you would like something different today. And I thought, oh, my God, just marry me now. Um, this man understands me. And, and I think he saved me. He, he saved me from, from never eating chocolate again. That's really interesting. Yeah, Alison, are you more sweet than savoury? That's an interesting point. It's the classic question. And I always, I'm like Joanne in that 
I everyone thinks because I do a lot of baking and a lot of cooking and seem to do a lot of sweet stuff that actually that's what would be my preference. But actually, I love savoury stuff. Give me anchovy toast or um, something savoury or toast and marmite any day over a sliced cake. <laughs> um, speaking of chocolat, Joanne, um, obviously it's uh, 20 years now and I know you were... You wrote a piece for The Guardian about writing it last year. I think I saw that, which was really beautiful insight into the whole period of you writing that book when you were working as a teacher at a grammar school and you were kind of, you know, writing in these kind of incredibly impressive bursts and you did it so quickly. Um, with the film being made the following year, I just wondered what was your what were your memories of that time, that kind of whirlwind of it becoming this complete sensation? What were some of the stranger things that happened? Oh, it was it was at the same time astonishing and wonderful and also very overwhelming. It was it was as if I never quite was able to settle down to what was happening before something else happened, which was even more off-putting and startling. And I had to, I was constantly trying to readjust my expectations of what happened. And it wasn't entirely comfortable. And in fact, it was, it was very uncomfortable in some ways. You know, I went from the classroom to touring various countries, and that was already hard enough because just the business of touring, dealing with the press, dealing with the public in, in such large numbers. I, I hadn't expected that at all. In many ways, Italy saved me because it gave me a dry run for what was going to happen in England and America. Mm. And then the movie happened. And initially, I thought, well, you know, this is just a movie option. Nothing's going to happen. Or if it does, it will take years. It, it did happen. And it didn't take years. It took like, you know, 18 months. And I was getting phone calls from Juliette Binoche. And I was, I was singing down the phone to Johnny Depp trying to, 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 to convey the chords that he would play when he was, he was playing his guitar, because he wanted to play the same tune I spoke about in, in the book. And, and then I was on set. And then I was in Hollywood. And then I was at the Oscars. And I was being, at the same time, I was being doorstepped at home by the sun. Um, because we had Oscar nominations and they wanted me to say something. And, you know, there, there were people lying in wait for me as I, I walked my daughter to school and she was five. And it was just, it was just amazing. But it was also quite frightening. And I had no idea who this person was that they wanted to talk to, but it wasn't me. And, and I, I had, for a whole year, I had these, these mysterious panic attacks whereby I would just faint. I'd never had a fainting fit before. It never happened after that, but for a year. And they were always in these, these astonishing venues, you know, like royal palaces or big, big premieres. I would just pass out like Tony Soprano and I would find myself on the floor surrounded by people and I would think, damn it, it's happened again. Um, and it must have been, it, it must just have been overload. I was like a slot machine on tilt. I would just go. Um, and and I think that was just me trying to come to terms with the reality and trying to reset every time it got a bit too much. And so yeah, it was it was a hell of a learning curve. But it was also it was it was also everything I'd ever dreamed of, which in some ways makes it makes it harder to cope with because you know writers they write things for a living they make stuff up but they never think that those dreams are going to come true. Of course, yeah. Um, it was so breakneck, as you as you say there. It's kind of so rare for something to go from page to screen in that kind of short amount of time, and to get the the acclaim that it got on its release. Um, how did you come through that period of when you were kind of at your 
lowest ebb, as it seemed, or you were overwhelmed by this thing that you'd been longing for? Like, what got you through? Well, I think that what helped enormously was that I was in my 30s and not in my 20s when this happened. It wasn't my first novel. Um, and I had had time to to get used to the idea, first of all, that I wasn't going to be successful as a novelist and then that I was going to be successful as a novelist. None of this would have been possible, I think, if, if I'd been 25 instead of being 35 or whatever. Um, I think if I'd lived in London, it would have been harder. But I live in the north. I live in Yorkshire. I live in a rural place. And so I was grounded geographically as well. I wasn't at the heart of things. There was that moment when I got hounded by the press. But most of the time that happens primarily to Londoners because <laughs> journalists don't want to traipse all the way to Barnsley to, to doorstep some woman taking her kid to school. It's much easier to do it on your own doorstep. And so there was that. And also my family was very grounded. Um, my family took it all very much more in their stride than I did. Um, my daughter was was still young enough to just go, oh, my mother's famous now. Don't quite know what she does. She signs her name a lot. And then that was it. There, there wasn't, there was a very strong family unit there. My parents were very supportive. Um, my mother still doesn't feel that I have a proper job. Um, you know, there was nobody, there was nobody around me that was going to allow me to get so swollen headed that I didn't know who I was anymore. And of course, I was still writing, and writing has always been my escape. Um, you know, I was still writing like a maniac, um, and it didn't matter where I was, whether I was at home or whether I was traveling. You know, I, I, I had been writing when I was teaching for so many years that the idea of writing in my spare time was not a new thing. And so, you know, all this author stuff that I had to do and, and all this traveling, that just replaced the teaching. And in my spare time, in hotel rooms and in airports and, and you know, in busy railway terminals, I, I wrote my next two books. And I guess also as you're traveling, you're looking at different ideas for different people and watching, getting characters as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, when I quit teaching and I quit teaching very reluctantly, leaving myself a long time to change my mind and to go back if I needed to, the one thing I was afraid of was that the human stimulus that I got every day from interacting with hundreds of different people every day in different situations, this this human element that that had always been part of my process, that I'd lose that and that I would just be, you know, sitting at home waiting for the muse to clock in. And I found that, A, that didn't happen because I, I never was sitting at home. You know, this is actually during lockdown, this is the longest I've had at home without going off and doing something in, in over 20 years. And I found that every time I went somewhere, met people, it just kept that essential part of the process alive. So yeah, everywhere I go, there are stories and people tell me stories. And of course, many of the stories are linked to recipes, which is also great. Everybody tells me about their, their recipes, their life around food. It, it's a wonderful thing. Mm. Is, is there an example of one that particularly sticks out, something related to a recipe that then sparked off into something really huge? There are lots that spring to mind. I don't tend to use people's stories when they're recognisable. But uh, what, what happens is that there's a sort of accumulation of small things that, that kind of build a big picture in my mind. And, and 
Um, I know when I was traveling for chocolat, I went all over the place. Um, people told me chocolate stories. Of course they did. And most of them were delicious, positive stories, but actually some of them were quite negative. And I started to build the idea that food can be a negative, that food can be a source of anxiety. And I ended up writing Five Quarters of the Orange, which is very much about this. And the story that, that I think sparked that off, um, I was traveling through Eastern Europe and I think I was in Serbia. Um, anyway, it was somewhere. It was somewhere like that where there had been proper unrest and war and unhappiness. And a woman was telling me about about her upbringing around chocolate. And um, her mother, who was a cleaner, and her father was dead. Um, and her mother used to occasionally save up enough money to buy her a little square of chocolate. And to her mother, this was the, the culmination of everything food-wise. It was, you know, it was, it was the most delicious thing she could think of. The girl didn't like it. It was dark chocolate. She didn't like the taste of it. And it got to the point of embarrassment that she wasn't able to tell her mother that she didn't like it because this was a gift that she was given and it was a special thing and she didn't want to hurt her feelings. And so she would put these little squares of chocolate down the back of the radiator where they would disappear. And this happened over several years until eventually the radiator stopped working and it got taken off the wall, <laughs> revealing this little lake of melted and re-solidified chocolate with the paper still in. And she told me, and this was a woman of my age, and she said, you know, decades later, I still remember the expression on my poor mother's face as she saw this and it registered. And it was a horrendous story, but it was also very funny. And I didn't know whether to laugh or cry, but she sought me out to tell it to me. And I thought, you know what, there's something here. Yeah, that's kind of great that you... Um, put these stories out into the world and then you become this kind of repository for kind of people's tales and their own sort of family oh, yes. stories. Oh, That's the, the more stories story. you tell, the more stories you get. This is, this is yeah. very much the case for people who tell stories and especially if the stories are about people and things that those people have experienced. And, and I've said it before many times, but food is one of those things that connects people. The giving of it, the sharing of it, the experiencing of another culture via food initially if you don't know the language if you don't know all that much about it you can still try the food and it's a, it's a way of of saying you know I welcome you going to ask about your cooking what what are the things that you've kind of gone back to what are the things that have brought a particular solace or, or discoveries that you've been that you've been quite enjoying what, what things have you been cooking I don't bake my husband bakes very well when he wants to and he might do it once every 10 years but it doesn't happen very often um, but no I, I've been doing more cooking than I usually do because I have more time at home than I usually do um, I've been making a lot of things because I like food to be seasonal and local mm. if possible. Mm. So mm. what I cook, what I make tends to depend on what's available and where I am and what time of year it is. Um, and because I've had a limited amount of, of, of choice, um, I've looked at what was, what, what was actually seasonal. So I've grown food and I've made jam. I don't always do this because I don't always have time, but um, 
I made jam with my plums and my blackberries and um and I cooked some crumbles and things with my apples and my rhubarb which was fun um I don't do this all that often um otherwise um you know, I, I did have an awful lot of pasta in my food cupboards, and I've, I've found ways to use pasta in lots of different ways. Lots of roast vegetables, which I like, and which you can use in all sorts of ways. You can make all kinds of things with those. And because I had a lot of fresh, homegrown things and also locally grown things, that was nice. And I was able to to find all sorts of ways of doing carrots and potatoes and, and things. But I also grew some tomatoes. And I think, you know, one of my favorite things in summer is just a very ordinary tomato salad. I think mm. I don't tend to cook complicated food. Um, whatever it looks like in my cookbooks, and, and my cookbooks are a particular kind of of French and nostalgic food, but I, because I don't have a huge amount of time, I tend to to keep to quite simple things. Um, and yes, I get a lot of joy out of a tomato and basil salad, especially when all the ingredients have been homegrown. What would you turn to as a comfort food then, other than the tomato salad? It would depend what time of year it was. At the moment, I am no longer eating salads. I don't feel like it the way I usually do. And so I'm making a lot of soups and stews and curries and and things which are kind of warmer and more kind of more filling, I think. And so, you know, I, I, I can never really go wrong with a nice soup. I've been making some mushroom soups recently. Um, I've used one of Jack Munro's recipes. She has a very nice one for mushroom soup, which I really love. Um, leek and potato is a good one as well, which I really enjoy. And also just putting a lot of vegetables into a slow cooker and and making a vegetable curry. I really, I really like that. And and I mean to me, anything stodgy right now is good. I think it's a good philosophy to live by. I wanted to ask as well about your synesthesia. Have I pronounced it correctly there? I think so, yes. Talk us through that for people that don't understand this um this condition? It is a little difficult to describe because it's different for every person who has it. It's basically, I think, a kind of cross-connection in the brain. Um, a neurotypical brain has properly defined sensors. And so when you see something, you just see it. You don't have another sensation that comes with sight. And the same goes with your other senses. Now, this isn't true with people with synesthesia. They tend to have crossovers. And so sometimes people can see sounds or in my case, um, I smell colors. I, I think also, I think I don't really know the difference between smell and taste. So I, I also taste colors and red, for instance, to me is, is chocolate. And if I see red, particularly in a bright light, I smell chocolate, which can be confusing because I don't always know whether it's a real smell or whether it's synesthesia. And I have to actually shut my eyes and properly concentrate on, on the actual smells around me to know what's real and what is just me. So the color of the food doesn't always link up to the smell that you're smelling? No. No, not at all. Ripe tomatoes smell of chocolate. Wow. They also smell of tomatoes, but I have to shut my eyes to make them properly smell of tomatoes. Otherwise, they'll smell of, of tomatoes and this synesthesia smell of, of chocolate, which bright red always triggers for me. And chocolate doesn't, to me, the colour of chocolate doesn't smell of chocolate at all. So what would something like green smell of? Depends on the green. 
a lettuce. Okay, uh, the, that kind of bright green. Let me see if I can see something. I can't actually properly see anything that would trigger that. But it would probably smell of diesel or gas or something like that because those sort of colours tend to trigger those kind of chemical smells. And so before you, you knew what this was or had it kind of, you know, diagnosed, as it were, like, what was it like to kind of go through life? And how did it, did it sort of impact the way you kind of viewed the world, the way you wrote? I'm sure it's impacted. It's impacted everything. But it never occurred to me that it wasn't normal. I thought everybody was like that. Because everybody does think that everybody's like that. Everybody thinks that their normal is another person's normal. And so it took me until I was in my 30s to realize that A, I wasn't neurotypical at all, and B, that there was a name for it. And, and you know, you could actually talk to other people who had it. And so I went through a phase of, of talking to other synesthetes online, going, what does your, yours do? And, and, is, and, and of course, nobody is, nobody is the same as anybody else. So I found people who thought Wednesday was green and other people people who thought that the name Nigel smelt of fish um, or, or, you know, and it was fascinating. And I realized that actually the perception of the world that we have is is a very personal thing. Um, And it was, it was, it answered a lot of questions that I'd had about my childhood. Um, You know, when I said things like, I like the chocolate one, when I really meant I like the red one. And people just didn't, register the meaning of that. And I thought, well, you know, why not? I thought, oh, this explains all that. But no, it had never, never occurred to me that, that people didn't, didn't experience colours and scents in the way that I, because why would you ask yourself that question? Yeah, yeah. It's a really important point about how we experience the world and also the kind of things that we don't really know about, you know, our kind of perception and brains and, yeah, fascinating um, what have you got kind of lined up next? What kind of things are you are you plotting away on in the, your shed, which we can see, which is quite famous on Twitter, isn't it? The shed. It's kind of. I think the shed has has more fans than I do. Honestly, <laughs> it's become a character. But in yeah, itself. I mean, I've been lucky. I've been very lucky in lockdown in that a I have much more space than most people have, um, and. I haven't stopped working. I mean, some people have found that anxiety over current events has totally stopped them working. And I have found that most of the time I've been able to to put that anxiety aside and really properly get down to work. And so I've been working furiously during lockdown. Um, I've written one self-help book called 10 Things About Writing for people who want to write in lockdown, in fact. I, I I was going to do that so that people who who felt that yo this is the time I get to write that book I've been planning so that they could they could do that. Um, my new novella Orfea uh, just came out. I am just at the moment finishing a thriller called A Narrow Door, which um, which is set in the same world as my other thrillers. Joanne, it's been an absolute joy to have you on. Thank you so much for your time and for your incredible oh, you. answers and for the chocolate radiator story, which I think will live <laughs> on with me forever. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, both of you. And uh, yeah, our love to the shed as well. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. The shed sends back its appreciation. You've been listening to Life on a Plate with Waitrose. I'm Jimmy Famarewa. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavy, and to our guest, Joanne Harris. To learn more about the series, please go to www.waitrose.com forward slash podcast. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.